Well, good morning. How are you today? Um, I just got back this past week from high school summer camp, and it was a blast. Um, and now I get to come back and talk to you about money, which is not fun. So uh, it's a great ending to the week. Um, uh, money can be an uncomfortable subject, can't it? Um, if, you know, the, the questions that you're not supposed to ask someone are, how much do you make? How much did it cost? How much do you owe? Right? Those are like questions that are kind of off limits, right? If I asked you those questions in the lobby, you would just not come back to this place, right? Or at least not talk to me anymore. Um, and so that's true. Um, we also do this thing in our culture where if you give someone a gift, uh, you want to make sure that you take the price tag off of it before they get it, right? And that's true whether you spent a lot on it or not. Um, in fact, maybe it's, you know, either way, it's like uncomfortable. For some reason, we don't want them to know that. Um, money can be uncomfortable. Um, I remember when Courtney and I were in premarital counseling, um, just trying to prepare for marriage, you know, and... Um, even though we were both raised with very similar ideas about money and we were approaching money in mostly the same way, um, it still created some tension in our conversations um, in premarital counseling because um, we both had fears associated with money that we were bringing into marriage. My fear was that Courtney was gonna spend all of our money. Um, (laughs) And her fear was that she would never get to go to Starbucks again, you know? Um, And so we had to talk through that. And so when Courtney and I do premarital counseling with couples, uh, we always make sure that money is one of the things that we talk about. Um, We want to know, what was money like in your home? Was it talked about? And if it was talked about, was it talked about with dollars or just in concept? That's different. Was money a stress in your home? And so we talk about that. And what's interesting is, is even with people who love one another, who are committed to one another, it can still get awkward talking about money. And this is maybe even more true at church when we talk about money here. And maybe in this setting, one of the concerns you have in talking about money is just that I want yours. Um, maybe that's part of the, the concern. And certainly televangelists over the years have not done the church any favors in this regard. Um, so if you're here for the first time today, or maybe for the first time in a while, and now the subject is money, we're just confirming all of your stereotypes. And so I just want to acknowledge that up front, all right? Um, but the reason that we're talking about this is actually not because... Um, we were reviewing the budget and, you know what, we ought to give a money talk so we can, you know, fix things. Um, And it's not because we just really enjoy awkwardness, um, even though that is also something that's true of most churches that I've been to, at least, um, is that we tend to create awkward moments for people. Um, But that's not the reason that we're doing this. The reason that we're talking about money is because what's interesting is Jesus actually talked about money more than almost any other subject. It was something that he was constantly talking about, and yet 
to the best that I can tell, he was never asking for money. So he's talking about it all the time, but he's never taking up a collection, you know. On one occasion, he does ask somebody for a coin so he can make a, an illustration, but then he gives it back right afterwards, as far as we can tell. So Jesus talked about money a lot, but he wasn't trying to raise a bunch of money. And I think the reason is because he knows something about money that we need to learn. We're concluding this series today called How to Think Like Jesus. How to Think Like Jesus. And we're looking at parables from the Gospel of Luke. Parables are just short stories that have a point that help us to see ourselves and the world and God from a new perspective. And today, Jesus talks about money because there's something that he wants us to learn about money. So here's the situation that we just read about. Um, Here's the situation that prompts Jesus to tell this story. He was teaching and there was a large crowd and someone from the crowd calls out to him. This is verse 13, uh, Luke chapter 12. Someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So apparently this guy's got a brother, they're Uh, family um, had left them some money. And for whatever reason, one of the brothers has not given him his share. And so he's upset about that. And that's understandable. And you would be too. I would be too. And so he appeals to Jesus to settle this situation. And well, if Jesus tells him to give me my money, then he'll have to, right? Um, And so Jesus responds uh, and says, verse 14, friend, he said to him, Who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? In other words, why do you want me to get involved in that? There are legal processes you can go through if you need to get that situation resolved. Why are you coming to me? And then Jesus uses this as an opportunity not to settle this dispute between some brothers, but instead to teach us something about money. And so he tells the brother this, verse 15. Watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. See, Jesus is talking to this guy and he says, here's here's the belief that you're living with. If you were to get the inheritance from your brother, if you were to have more money, your life would be better. That's why you can't wait for me to get this thing settled for you. And Jesus wants to challenge that assumption. The assumption that if I had more, my life would be better. And so Jesus says, be on guard against greed. What is greed? Greed is just the desire for more. It's the desire to have more. And underneath greed is this belief that my life would be better if I had more. And Jesus says, you need to guard against that and here's why. Because life 
is not in an abundance of possessions. And when he says life here, he's not talking about like to have a pulse, you know. He's talking about to really be living on the inside. He's saying happiness is not the result of having more. He's saying security, this feeling of safety as you think about the future, is not the result of having more. Significance and feeling like you're important and you matter and and you're worth people's respect is not actually from having more. Life, he says, does not consist. Life is not in the abundance of possessions. Now, here's what's so interesting about that to me. Is Jesus is warning this man to guard against the desire for more because life is not in the abundance of possessions. And that is so counterintuitive because typically, here's how we think. We think that in order to guard our lives, in order for our happiness to go untouched, in order for our security to be intact, in order for our future to be secure, we actually need to guard our money. In order for me to guard my life, I need to guard my money. That's how I would actually protect myself. That's how I would would actually ensure a good future is if I guarded my money. And Jesus says, that is what you need to guard yourself against. That is actually the thing to guard against is the belief that if you had more, that you'd be good, that you'd be happy, that you'd be secure, that you'd be safe. Jesus says, guard against that because life is not in the abundance of possessions. And because that's so counterintuitive, the next thing he does is he tells a parable. He tells a story to illustrate why that's true. The parable goes like this, verse 16. A rich man's land was very productive. So he experienced a great harvest. He owned a bunch of land and he had way more of a crop than he thought he would. So his, a rich man's land was very productive, verse 17. And so he thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? And so now he's got a problem. We had so much, what am I gonna do now with all my stuff? And before we judge this guy, let's think for just a minute about our lives. Have you ever had this problem? You're like, nah, I've never had that problem. I've never had too much. It'd be a great problem to have, you know, to have so much stuff you don't know where to put it. That that would be a great problem. But man, this guy, he's rich and productive and unrelatable. Let me ask you something. Have you ever gone to pull into your garage, but you couldn't get your car in there because there was too much stuff? (laughs) Have you ever had to make some trips to Goodwill because... Not you were just overflowing, you know, with 
joy for serving others and you just believed so much in goodwill or something, but because, man, we're, we're out of room here for all of our stuff, we gotta make a trip, right? Have you ever gone into your attic or your basement, wherever you store stuff, and you've got these things that you're taking down there because it's your stuff and you gotta keep your stuff. So you're, you're making your way down there, but when you get there, you find out that actually the last time you made a trip, that stuff is still there. And so now you're out of room and you don't have anywhere to put your stuff. And then you're thinking, what am I gonna do? Because I got my stuff. And I mean, it's my stuff. I mean, we're not gonna get rid of it because it's my stuff and you have to keep your stuff. And so what am I gonna do? We could get a storage unit, all right? We could rent a storage unit. That would be a solution. Or, I know, maybe we just tear this thing down and build a bigger one. And that's what this man does. He's got so much stuff, he doesn't know what to do with it all, and so he has an idea. And it's a pretty smart idea. Verse 18, I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grains and my goods there. And why is he doing that? Why is that such a good idea? And like, as we read that, we're like, yeah, that is smart. All right, you just had too small of a barn, man. Now you've got a bigger barn, you can keep more stuff. And that's way better. Why is that way better? Because this man, just like us, operates with an assumption. And the assumption is this, that if we have more, our life will be better. And so here's what this man says to himself after he's decided to build a bigger barn. Verse 19, then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. So take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. What is he saying? Now that I have so much, I can take it easy. In other words, money is the solution to my stress. If I just had more, I wouldn't be so stressed. If we could ever get to this amount, then I'd be able to take it easy. Then I'd be able to put down work if I ever got to this amount. Take it easy, he says. Eat, drink. In other words, now I don't have to say no to myself anymore. Now I can have everything I'll need and everything I'll want, which is the key to happiness, right? Is getting everything that you want. And so I'm gonna be able to enjoy myself now. Why? Because I have more. Life is better when I have more because life is in the abundance of possessions, right? And Jesus says next what happens is God talks to him and says, verse, nine, verse 20, you fool. What's a fool? It's someone who doesn't live with the future in mind. It's someone who lives as if God and the things of God do not exist. So God talks to him and says, you fool, this very night, your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared for yourself, whose will they be? 
And the answer is, he doesn't know. He doesn't know what's going to happen to all this stuff because he was only thinking about himself. And one pastor said it like this, this man ran out of time before he ran out of money. And that happens to so many people. And before they were ever able to think about to what ends their money might be a means, they just used their money as the end. They found all their meaning, all their happiness in just the process of building bigger barns, accumulating more. And that makes someone foolish if after you die, you're going to lose it all. Like for someone who cares so much about wise investments, that seems like a pretty poor investment if you're going to lose it all, and that's guaranteed. So instead, Jesus says, verse 21, that's how it is for the person who stores up treasure for himself, who builds bigger barns, accumulates more, and is not rich toward God. The first time I remember reading this parable, I was in college. And I thought, that's actually the verse that sounds foolish to me. So I'm just supposed to be rich toward God. Do you, like, doesn't that sound dumb? I'm going to have eternal treasure, heavenly treasure. And I thought that was stupid until about a year later, I remember where I was in college when I read this next verse. I read this in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The Apostle Paul is writing to this church and he's asking them to give to these other churches who are in need. And while he's asking them to do that, here's the reason he gives. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. How does this lofty theoretical idea that you got to be rich towards God, heavenly treasure, you know, how does that come down to earth? It comes down to earth in a person whose name is Jesus. Suddenly what seems super theoretical and, you know, foolish takes on flesh in Jesus. And so Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? The word grace there is the word gift. You know the generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? What did Jesus do? Though he was rich, though he was rich, he had an abundance. Did you know that about Jesus? 
Before Jesus came to earth, he surveyed things in heaven. And he thought, you know what? We've got a lot here. Hmm. And all of that stuff down there belongs to us. Hmm. What should we do? And he did not build a bigger barn for himself. Do you know what he did? Instead, he chose to tear down his barn by coming to the earth, by taking on human likeness. That was not a promotion, that was a demotion. And he chose to give and give and give until he gave it all. Though he was rich, for your sake, he became poor. That is, he gave everything by going to a cross and dying so that sinners like you and me who owe a debt we could never pay, could not just pay off the debt, but could actually be rich towards God. So Jesus, though he was rich for your sake, became poor so that by his poverty, by what he did, you might become rich. When I read this verse, it it reminded me of Luke chapter 12 and how that just seemed so dumb to me. And it helped me see that no, if Jesus really came to earth and if he really went to the cross and died and if he really was raised from the dead, then this is not just some fanciful idea for people who don't know how to use their money. This is actually the most real thing you could do is choose, you know what? I am not going to try to accumulate wealth here at the expense of being rich towards God, at the expense of having a future with God. And that's the tricky thing about money. It's not that if you have money, you don't get to be with God forever. It's that there's something in money that causes you to trust in it rather than in God. This is why Jesus warned against greed, this belief that if we just had more, if we just had more, if we just had more, then we would be fine, then we would be happy, then we would be secure, then we would be safe. Jesus warns against that because that is a lifestyle and that is a belief that will cause you to dismiss the truthfulness of the gospel. When we use the word gospel, we're just referring to the good news about Jesus, that though he was rich, for your sake, he became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. That's what we're talking about when we say gospel. We're talking about the fact that Jesus left heaven and came to earth, lived a sinless life, went to the cross and died in the place of sinners and then rose from the dead. Someday he'll return to judge the living and the dead. That's what we're talking about when we mention gospel. And so money and trusting in money is actually something that leads my heart away from trusting in the gospel. And so Jesus warns against it. Look, you can either believe that life is in an abundance of possessions or 
you can choose to believe that life is in having an abundance with God. Choose wisely. And this is something that the apostles, Jesus' disciples, took note of and thought about. Because in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, Jesus' closest follower, writes this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse four, and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that is kept in heaven for you. Peter did not forget this. Peter began to understand that In the gospel, in Jesus's death and resurrection, we have something available to us that is far more valuable than earthly possessions. We have an inheritance that's not just theoretical, we'll get to float around in ethereal existence forever. No, we have an inheritance. You'll be able to touch it. And it is incorruptible. That is It doesn't disappear when you die. Death can't take away this inheritance that we have. And he says, it's undefiled. And that means it's free from sin. It was not accomplished. It was not gained through any kind of selfish or corrupt means. Instead, it was, it's free from sin, which also means it can't somehow ruin your life later. You know, on earth, when people get wealthy, a lot of times, you know, more money actually brings more problems. That's not true about this inheritance. It's not like you're going to get there and then all of a sudden, oh gosh, turns out we, this inheritance is ruining our lives. Now our eternity is horrible because we got this inheritance. It's not how this inheritance works. And he says, this inheritance is unfading which means that it is not subject to the law of diminishing return. See, on this life, on this earth, the more money you get, eventually the less value it has. And that's true of experiences as well. The more times that you go to the same well, the less times the well satisfies you. That's the law of diminishing return. It's like uh, in our family, something that was like my go-to breakfast for a while was banana smoothies. Right, um, and I loved them. I was crazy about them. Just frozen bananas, almond milk, peanut butter, super good. And I still like that, but I don't like it as much as the first two. And the reason is the law of diminishing return. That does not apply to the inheritance in heaven. It's unfading. That means its value never diminishes, and your enjoyment of it never diminishes. And here's the last thing he says about that. It's kept in heaven for you. So how do we know we're gonna be able to get it? Verse five, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. See, we think that in order to guard our happiness, in order to guard our security, 
our safety, our future, we need money. He's saying you're being guarded by God's power for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. So what you need to do and what I need to do is guard against greed. We need to guard against greed. Why? Because greed is this thing that has the, the, the natural pull away from the gospel. So if we're going to hold on to the gospel, believe the gospel and guard against greed, what does that look like? How do we, how do we live in light of the gospel as it relates to our money? How do we proactively guard against greed? Are we supposed to wait around and like, okay, if greed ever starts to come, I'm just gonna fight it. No. The way that we live in light of the gospel as it relates to our money and the way that we guard against greed is through generosity. It's through giving. Giving is a practice that reminds me about the truth of the gospel. And giving is a practice that guards my heart against this belief that if I have more, that's really how life is had. If I have more, that's really how I would be happy. Generosity fights against that. Generosity is a weapon to fight greed. And so what would it look like for you in your life to live a life of generosity, to proactively fight greed and to proactively apply what's true in the gospel to your money? What would that look like? Two questions that I normally get when, I, when I'm talking with people one-on-one about money. Here's the first one. Is how much are we supposed to give? All right, so I'm supposed to be generous, but like, break this down for me, man. Like, how much money are we talking about here? And that's a good question. And I don't know that there's an answer to that question. That's the same for everybody. I think that's something that you need to spend some time asking the Lord about. But to give you some things to think about as it relates to determining how much money you're supposed to give... I just want to share something that was really helpful for me. This is from a book called Fields of Gold by a pastor. Um, And I want to share four P's of giving with you. Okay, four P's of giving. Here's the first one. As you're trying to think about how how much to give, is priority giving. Priority giving. This just means you give first, not last. So, when you get a direct deposit into your account or when you get a paycheck, you choose that on the front end, you're going to give an amount rather than waiting until the end of the month to see what's left over and then giving based on what's left. And the reason that priority giving is significant, I think, is a couple reasons. For one, if you give at the end, the bottom line of what you end up giving will almost always be smaller than if you give on the top. That's just the way the human heart works. It's like, well, we used it up and now we've only got this left and so, well. So 
To be generous, you gotta be proactive, which is why putting it at the front uh, is helpful. The other thing though that priority giving does is it forces you to have to trust God with your finances. If you're just giving at the end, then you're just kind of like, well, we know we have this left over, and so it doesn't require a lot of faith to give that. If you give on the front end, you're actually having to practice trust that I believe God is actually the one who protects me more than money. Now, again, that idea right there can be applied to really unhealthy amounts and like, The moment I get a check, I'm just writing the whole thing. And it's like, well, one of the ways God actually provides for you is through the money that you make at your job. And so don't be a fool who just gives it all away and then is like, God, I I need you to provide for me. It's like he's providing, right? Generosity, though, is choosing to understand that I am not an owner of the resources that God entrusts to me. Instead, I'm a manager. I'm not an owner, I'm a manager. And so, God, I want to be generous. So on the front, the first line in the budget is going to be what we intend to give. So that's priority giving. That's the first P. Second P is percentage giving. Percentage giving. Um, By percentage giving, um, rather than picking an amount that you're going to give, you choose to give a percent of your income. The reason that this is valuable is because it objectifies giving and it ensures that your generosity continues as your finances grow. See, if you decide today, all right, here's the amount I'm gonna give and you pick an amount and then in two years, you're making a little bit more, the nature of the human heart is for you to not go back and reevaluate how much you give. The nature of the human heart is for us just to keep giving that amount and feel good about it because one time we decided. Percentage giving frees you from that and it objectifies it a little bit more. Um, In the Old Testament, um, a command was a tithe or 10%. Um, In the New Testament, I think that can be a helpful principle. I think you have a hard time making an argument that that is a requirement in the New Testament. Um, But I think it's still a helpful principle um, is to give 10%. But again, we're not owners, we're managers. God's the owner. And so it's all his, right? And so to relegate it to, well, God only requires 10%. I heard people say, well, God only requires 10%, so I'm not gonna tip more than 10% at a restaurant. It's like, well, there's so many things wrong with that reasoning. Um, But okay, Um, so the principle of a tithe, I think, is helpful. That can be a a, a great goal to aim for. Um, For some of you, though, if if you're not currently practicing a regular priority giving, um, a tithe could actually feel like a leap for you. And following Jesus is about steps, not leaps. So if, if you can't commit to 10%, pick a percentage. Just pick one. Maybe it's 3% to start. Maybe it's 6%. I don't know. You know your finances better than me. But pick a percentage. Percentage giving is a way of objectifying it. And, um, and that's the second P. Here's the third P as you think about the amount you should give. Progressive giving. 
progressive giving. This means that over time, you're gonna continue to look for ways to grow your giving. See, the, the tithe principle can become a crutch. It's like, well, I've been giving 10% for 40 years, and like, you're excited about that. And I'm like, that's excellent. But what would it look like for you to give 11? See, as your finances grow, why is the baseline assumption that that means the level of enjoyment and indulging of things also needs to grow? Why would we not assume that we could spend more on giving when our finances grow? And I'm not saying this to be a arm twist. I'm saying this just to ask questions for you to think about. What would it look like for you to increase the percentage that you give? And then last is prompted giving. Prompted giving. This is, okay, so we've committed to giving on the front end. We've picked a percentage. We want that percentage to grow. Now, though, I'm already giving this. But as I experience needs, God, are there times where you want me to step in even above and beyond what I've already committed to? When I find out about this family who needs help, when I find out about this cause that this person is asking me to support, are there times, God, where you would be prompting me to give in a spontaneous way that's unplanned? And sometimes the danger in having the, we can assume that the priority giving and the percentage giving and the progressive giving is like an out for not having to participate in something, some need that arises. What would it look like for you to wonder and, and pray about, God, are there needs around me that you would be calling me to step into, to be able to help? And God, maybe how do I need to think about what I've budgeted? Maybe I need to actually decrease my percentage by one or 2% so that I can be more prepared to respond to needs as they arise. I don't know. These are just things to think about. But here's the bottom line question as you think about what amount to give is what does your giving say about your heart? What does your giving say about your heart? The second question that I get, so the first is, how much should we give? How much are we talking about? The second is, where should we give? Where should we give? And I always appreciate when people ask me that because it can be awkward because I work for the church. And so it's, you know, like, well, please, you know? Um, and so I, I appreciate that people feel the comfort to ask that. And I think that's a great question. And the answer that I give to that question is, you should pray about that and you should give where the Lord leads you to give. That's the answer that I give. Now, my personal conviction, this is speaking for myself, is I believe that God's primary activity in the world is in the local church. I believe that when Jesus gave the Great Commission that he wants us 
to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that, that he's commanded us. And then he says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I think that's got local church written all over it. I think the local church is God's vehicle to accomplish his purposes in the world today. And so my personal conviction is that I give first to the local church before I support any other organizations that we support. Um, and again, part of that though is I, I believe in this or I wouldn't have given my life to it. You know, I feel a personal calling to teach the scriptures. Um, but I also think that this is something every Christian should care about at least. Um, there is value in the preaching of God's word in you being in a position to hear it taught and applied to your life. There's, there's power and value in that that I think is worth you investing in. I think that's worth your time and your resources and that includes your money. I believe that. I believe that about gathered worship. I believe that about small groups. I believe that about investing in the next generation. Um, last week we were at camp and um, this weekend I got this email from a mom and um, one of her students was at, one of her kids was at camp and she talked about how for years she's just been frustrated with her kid because it seems like he's just not taking anything seriously. He's not, you know, doing the stuff that she wants him to be doing. He's not really engaged in the things of God. And this week when he got home from camp, he just hasn't stopped talking about what he learned at camp. And so she was writing to say, thank you so much. And I love hearing that. And as, as someone who is at camp, I'm like, great, you know, that's awesome. But here's the deal. Is that didn't just happen because of one week at camp. That's the result of seeds that have been planted that for so long you thought nothing good was happening. For so long you thought, man, he's not even paying attention. He hates this. This is boring. There are so many adults who are giving their time to invest. And that's the power of the local church to me. Is the church is the place where God's people come together for the sake of helping each other follow Jesus. And we come together for the sake of helping people who don't know Jesus meet him. And so when you think about where to give, <clears throat> I mean, I just wouldn't even be honest if I didn't say, yeah, I believe in the local church and, and I think you should consider giving to the local church. My hesitancy though in saying all of that is there has been so much spiritual abuse take place from people who stand in a pulpit like this and in God's name command you to give to their thing. And that just feels super awkward to me and I don't want any part of that. And so that's why I, I don't feel the need to command anyone to give to any local church or even this local church. Because I think if, if you are putting, if you're aiming your heart towards the things of God, at some level, you will come to love and care about a local church, even if it's not this one. And so, 
Anyway, that's my own rambling around how I try to sort through that question with integrity and authenticity um, as a pastor, all right? So where should you give? I don't know, pray about it. Um, And maybe that's the local church. Um, The other thing you could ask though, as you're thinking about where to give, um, one pastor shared this and I thought this was really helpful, is give from a grateful heart. So is there an organization or a ministry that you're extremely grateful for, for the, for the difference they've made in your life or the difference they've made in someone that you love's life? And if so, then give out of gratitude to that organization. So give from a grateful heart. The second one is to give from a broken heart. Are there particular needs that you are burdened by, that you see in the world? that because you have a unique heart that breaks over that thing, then give towards that. Give towards organizations that go to address that need. Um, Those are are two ways to maybe think through um, how God might be leading you to give. But here's the question I wanna end with today that I wanna leave you with. is what would it look like for you to take a step in this area? Following Jesus is about steps, not leaps. So what would it look like just for you to take a step in this area? To practice generosity, not out of obligation, because we twisted your arm today and, you know, well, if you want to be a good Christian or something. Not out of obligation, but instead, out of thinking through the gospel and what's true, what's really true. In light of the gospel, how should I give? And in light of this warning from Jesus to guard against greed, how should I be proactive in my giving? I'm gonna ask the Holy Spirit, to help give you wisdom and courage as you think about that. Father, thank you so much for sending your son. Thank you that he chose generosity. Thank you that you chose generosity by sending him. God, I pray that that our hearts and our minds would be shaped by the reality of what's true in Christ that that would be the thing that shapes our approach to money. God, I pray right now that your spirit would be active. Would you give wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard today? And would you give us the courage to do it? It's in Jesus' name that I ask, amen.